Hello and welcome to the Unguy podcast. My name is Nafisha Richardson. I am a 23-year-old feminist activist from St. Vincent and the Grenadines and a member of the Commonwealth Youth Gender and Equality Network, SIGEN. I have been working with the UN Girls Education Initiative, known as Unguy, since 2020. The Ongai podcast explores the cross-cutting role of education across the six Generation Equality Action Coalition thematic areas, including gender-based violence, bodily autonomy and SRHR, and feminist movements and leadership. Each episode, I interview two notable activists, experts, and leaders working on these issues from two different regions and perspectives. Each episode answers one big question on education and how it connects to some of the biggest issues of our time. And today, we're asking the question, why should gender equality and education be prioritized in humanitarian contexts? And we're joined by Robin Savage and Amani Aruri. Robin is an education specialist focused on access and education in emergencies with UNICEF, based in northeastern Nigeria. Amani is a member of the Global Youth Task Force on the Beijing 25, and a member of the Task Force on the Generation Equality Compact on Women, Peace and Security, and Humanitarian Action based in Palestine. Hello, Nafisha. Thank you so much. Hi, Nafisha. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. And we are so excited to hear from both of you today as we mark the International Day to Protect Education from Attack. In light of this day and the recent events in Afghanistan and Haiti, this discussion on why and how issues of gender and education should be prioritized in humanitarian contexts is so timely. And I want to first take a moment for solidarity with women and girls in Haiti, Afghanistan, Palestine, and other contexts affected by the crisis, conflict, occupation, and insecurity, whose rights and freedoms are currently under threat. Let us keep them in our thoughts. So firstly, Robin, you are currently working in northeastern Nigeria, a region which has experienced many years of insecurity and violence, with severe consequences for the rights of women and girls, including the right to education. Can you tell us a little more about the situation there at the moment and the work that you're doing with UNICEF to respond to the crisis? Sure. Uh, So with regards to my work specifically within UNICEF, I'm part of the education team uh, and education has been forever uh, a very cross-sectoral program based. Education is the gateway Uh, for all other interventions, usually to access children in conflict settings. Um, And it's one of the number one ways to help support the psychosocial development, as well as the the psychosocial protection, mental health, and PSS for kids experiencing conflict. And um, over to Amani, you are based in Palestine and often work in in Gaza with the refugee communities there. Can you tell us a bit about the status of girls' education in the region, especially given the additional crisis of the COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah, you know, as in other humanitarian and conflict uh, contexts, um, girls continue to bear the, uh, the brunt of hostilities, uh, placing their lives, dignity and well-being at risk. Um, 
in as in other uh, conflict context you know it's like a crisis within crisis especially with the covid uh, crisis uh, and there is a limited awareness and low access to education uh, for girls and lack of safe sanitation and health there's also lack of financial resources devoted to the uh, like the, to girls empowerment girls education as well with the increase uh, and exacerbation of gender based violence and domestic abuse and pervasive social norms mobility restrictions harmful practices child and forced marriages you know it's like, the emergencies are exacerbated uh, exacerbate pre-existing gender inequalities which lead to increased discrimination and in- exploitation also of girls um the needs of girls and women um, they are not really taken uh, as a top priority and uh, the needs are there's not enough and sufficient response by by different uh, actors and by also duty bearers um with uh, also to add to these uh, to these inequalities to add to these burdens that girls and uh, girls are experiencing the introduction of the online education system under the covid crisis also put another limitation to girls development and girls empowerment because uh, girls in, mar- in marginalized areas uh, are are not able to access these um you know online classes and to access online education first of all because most of them they don't have equipments they don't have the electronic devices that enable them to have this access and second of all because they have never been introduced to such um, an online system online education system so they cannot really deal with it and the parents uh, are more pressured because of this because you know so far many girls they missed almost 2 years of their education i completely agree with the fact that policies are um you know trying to move school online and then of course girls not being prioritized if even access was possible prioritized for the use of the resources required to do online learning uh but we had very similar very similar issues here where you know <laughs> they put the entire curriculum on the state radio which barely reaches you know a, a a tenth of the communities for both signal reasons and access to radio reasons but they were airing them in the middle of the day and this was a policy response to school closure but guess what girls are being asked to do in the middle of the day all of the housework and chores so you know programmatically we had to find a way to um meet the girls where they were at and provide after after hours radio learning clubs with pre-recorded sessions but just to circle back to you know the frustration i completely share with you around a lot of these policies that are you know they're they're actually doing more harm than good when they're leaving some of the most vulnerable some of those who are experiencing a crisis within a crisis when they're leaving them behind and this is supposed to be the solution not a another compounding problem Thank you and I think both you Amani and Robin really highlighted the the experiences that girls and women have and they they're totally different and you know how covid-19 has exacerbated pre-existing inequalities and I think that what you both mentioned actually leads me into my next question because we've already I guess explored this idea of gen uh, of a gender responsive education system particularly in emergencies so i wanted to know if robin firstly you can bring this to life for us give us an example of 
what a gender responsive education system looks like in practice and the impact that it can have on a girl's ability to go to school and most importantly to stay in school. Right. So with regards to programming practically and ensuring that that programming is inclusive and is considerate of the needs specific to girls and women. Uh, in the northeast of Nigeria, very recently, we did a, a U-Poll. Now, a U-Poll is a text message-based polling system with thousands of candidates who've already accepted to be part of these mass surveys. Um, and this particular U-Poll was about latrine design, and it was specifically seeking out information from women and girls to understand what would make them feel more comfortable, more safe, and more likely to use a latrine, uh, and what sorts of uh, elements or changes or, or you know, design shifts we could incorporate in a latrine that would not only increase their safety, but encourage girls who are currently menstruating to use these latrines while at school, allowing them to then therefore attend school during the days of the month in which they're, they're menstruating. Now, this was a really interesting poll to conduct. The language around it, the, the amount of time, work and effort that went between myself and the team to get the wording correct, not only culturally contextualized, but you know, make sure that I, as a woman, was asking exactly what I meant to ask to other women when the people who were translating uh, the questions were all men. We were able to, with uh, quite a bit of, of feedback and, and back and forth, get that done. And we got quite a response. It was very, very clear to us that the, you know, the design had to incorporate certain elements, which we, we knew needed to be done, but now we had the proof that this is what the women were asking for. Uh, so it backed up our, our argument when we took the design to construction, the construction team, and said, we need to make the following changes. Now, this was another moment where I was the only woman in the room and the only woman in the project, and I was advocating for changes that an engineering all-male team did not understand. And out of no uh, malice or, you know, ill will, they did the best they could with what they understood was required. And it took and continues to take, unfortunately, uh, this has been months uh, back and forth uh, to make this as clear and as accessible as possible. First iteration of this project, they came back with a, a mock-up of a latrine that from every angle, you could see completely through. And I had to ask my team, guys, if you were a 13-year-old girl and you had to carry from the toilet over across to the sink, uh, come out of the little cubicle, walk to the sink, completely visible with a bloody sanitary pad in your hand, um, either reusable to wash or non-reusable to, to throw away, how comfortable would you be with the entirety of the school able to see you? And they went, oh, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, so we agreed to enclose it. When we enclosed it, we also had to extend certain doors and areas uh, to ensure, you know, girls with disabilities and, and assistive devices could still get in. So, I mean, <clears throat> I think it's incredibly important that while we ensure our designs and our programs are inclusive and accessible, it would be great if there were more female engineers <laughs> or, you know, uh, working in the context of Northeastern Nigeria, the harder I push at education, the more I hope to see a female engineer in that position. But it does mean that my little battle every day is making sure that these questions are asked 
that these uh, changes are made and that these interventions are sustained. So keep asking the embarrassing questions, take absolutely no shame or prisoners, get the solutions we need to the girls that need them or nothing's going to change. Thank you for that. And um, I, that's a call for all female and engineers to what's <laughs> Robin. <laughs> yeah, come work with me, please. Please reach out to Robin because we need more women in that field who know the needs of women and know how to adapt appropriately. Um, over to Amani, you have worked on the Global Resilience funded to support girl-led and community-led initiatives during the pandemic. So can you tell us a bit about the impact that this has had on girls' leadership and education? Yes, of course. But if you allow me to just add one comment uh, regarding uh, uh, Robin's point. Uh, before we move on so we talked about uh, girls access to education and I totally agree with what Robin just mentioned Uh, but I I would like also to add that uh, access to education is not enough anymore and it has never been enough for girls Um, just like securing access to education and to schools for girls doesn't mean that they are getting the uh, like the proper education that the education that they deserve to to have because we know in in schools when we talk about patriarchal structures and um, you know um, you know like the stereotype gender stereotypes it is really embedded in the school systems in the curricula even Um, working on like structural reform like reforms education structural reforms after dismantling the structures it's really important. We need to work not only like just to secure uh, girls' access to education, but we need to make sure that teachers are well qualified to provide them with the education. We need to ensure that the, inf- the school's infrastructure is really um, um, appropriate also. Um, like in many schools, especially we're talking about like uh, conflict context and humanitarian context, There's no sanitation or hygiene, like a minimum hygienic or sanitation uh, standard in in schools. So this also affects like all like the health aspects, mental aspects, also psychological aspects of girls. Uh, Talking about the, the, you know, how to to have like really innovative educational approach. It's uh, it leads me to the point of the Global Resilience Fund. Uh, that uh, was initiated um, by Purposeful uh, during the like since the onset of COVID-19, um, and uh, it targeted young women and girls to design and to develop their uh, initiatives that community initiatives that respond to the implications of COVID-19 on girls in specific and young women, and to give them the full opportunity to to lead these initiatives from A to Z like to, to design, to develop, to implement, and also to evaluate the impact of these initiatives with also overcoming main challenge uh, that young women and girls have been facing when it comes to uh, funding, which is bureaucratic funding. Like, you know, the, like, uh, the several requirements uh, girls and young women are asked to, to submit and uh, the paperwork and all of that stuff. No, this time, we just asked them to come with an idea to, uh, to, like, to build teams of girls and young women and to start working on ground. 
with like providing them with a needed mentorship and needed uh, support. They broke all stereoty- gender stereotypes and broke the uh, the taboos that they have been living in. And they went, they they became vocal about their activism and they found a way also to influence their families. So I'm really proud to share this with you. And of course, I can also um, share with any of you who would like to know more about the nature of each uh, in- initiative. As it, the first phase proved its success, we also uh, worked on providing topping up funding for those initiatives who really proved to have a great impact on girls and women in their communities. Wow, that's really, really phenomenal. And it shows just how important it is to have girls lead. And, you know, once they're given the opportunity to lead, whether it's in art or whatever their passion is, the type of positive effect that it can have on the community that they live and the wider community. So thank you, Manny, for the amazing work that you are doing um, over to Robin, you have worked in both Haiti and Afghanistan to secure education opportunities for children in humanitarian contexts. What is your take on the current situation and what should the international community be doing to prevent a rollback on girls' rights and education? <sighs> My current take is heartbreak, absolute heartbreak. And like many of my friends and colleagues who have worked uh, and spent time in Afghanistan, uh, my heart is broken for what I know they're going through, those who are stuck behind and those who have left. Um, And those girls now have a target on their back and a target on their head, and as do their families for having allowed them to become educated and become doctors and veterinarians and female leaders and community leaders. Haiti also suffering through a series of very challenging events back to back. Uh, the issues for girls' education in Haiti, I found to be, uh, you know, far more socioeconomic than gender-based. And so it was, again, different area, different culture, different approach. So, I mean, <laughs> preventing a rollback, I don't even I don't know that I even agree with that that general term only because every country is in a different, very different spot. However, um, ensuring a continued support and advocacy for initiatives that are relevant, accessible, and accountable to their beneficiaries, I think that really requires donors to, uh, those donors who are intervening in humanitarian situations to remain flexible, to remain open to the solutions that come from the ground and imposing big, beautiful policies that look fantastic on paper and don't work at all in real life. I really appreciate your um, honest and just, you know, very practical approach to a lot of the work that you're doing. And I would love to hear if Amani has any thoughts to add. Yeah, thank you, Robin. I, I totally agree with you that each context is different, and um, you know there there should be a different response to it to uh, to different to different contexts. But uh, you know, I was I was reading many articles of Afghan women recently, and you know, um, a sentence stuck in stuck in my head saying that Taliban cannot take away who Afghan women 
have become in the past 20 years. You know, their education, their drive to work, their taste of freedom. And I think with the support of the international community of donors also who believe in the rights of, of, of women and general on, and specific also Afghan women, they can help them to survive this uh, and to win this also, uh, uh, this war and to, you know, regain their, their freedom and pursue their, uh, their potential. Because what they have, what Afghan women have achieved, it's really something to celebrate. And it shouldn't be like under any circumstance, uh, it shouldn't be acceptable that anyone come and take away what these women have achieved so far. Definitely. And it really goes to show just how important having an education is. And it's, it's something that no one can take away from you. They can try to take away your freedom and they can try to take away your liberty. But once you're equipped with an education, that's something that you hold on your own and it's not something that can be taken away at all. And um, furthering on this conversation, it goes without saying that any situation of conflict, occupation, violent crisis or displacement will have a huge traumatic effect on children and young people who are living in this reality. Based on both of your experiences, what role can education play in providing children and young people with psychosocial support and the ability to cope with this sort of trauma? Robin, you can take us away with this one. Sure. Well, I mean... In my experience, education was never considered a life-saving intervention. Uh, it wasn't until education in emergencies became coined as a, a thematic, um, very much in response to, at least on a global level, in response to uh, Syria, uh, we began to see huge shifts in funding towards EIE. Uh, not that it didn't exist before. For, but it started to attract a lot more money. And the reason it did and the reason it continues to today is like I, I mentioned earlier, the world realized that you cannot raise a generation of children who were torn out of what they know and their routine through violence and then sent to a camp to fend for themselves and play on the streets. A, a, huge, a huge amount of um, deterioration of social fabric, of of armed groups, criminality, uh, when you leave children who have experienced traumatic events uh, without any structure, without any capacity to uh, identify their feelings, identify their fears, manage, mitigate those fears, no social emotional learning, you leave a child entirely on their own traumatized and then put them in a refugee camp for five years, you're going to have a teenager who has neither the skills nor to contribute to a, uh, a society in a meaningful and positive way, probably very little desire to do so, uh, quite trauma traumatized um, and probably, you know, not not doing very well. So psychosocial support became one of the key elements to, to school, but not just even the game. It's not the learn how to identify your emotions and how to deal with your feelings games. The process, the act of having somewhere to go every day or every other day the structure of attending a school psychologically supported children to look forward instead of back. And the skills and community building that occurred in the process, as well as the you know, compounding benefits of other forms of cross-sectoral programming reaching that child, helped to ensure uh, 
not only their right to education, but a continued development of social fabric and skill in the community while they were displaced. Indeed, the stability of having that um, somewhere to go, you know, despite everything that, that they're facing, it's, it's truly important. And I would love to hear if Amani has any thoughts to add to this. Yeah, of course. I mean, living in conflict, it's not only, it doesn't only impact, uh, the conflict doesn't only impact uh, girls or women. It impacts everyone. And, um, you know, it, it, it ended up, it ends up like uh, impacting uh, girls directly and indirectly, directly when they witness, um, you know, the war, bombing, killing, home, house destruction, and also school destruction as well. Uh, seeing their beloved ones injured and suffering and indirectly by you know the reproduction of this trauma by other family members by also exacerbation of of violence against girls as a result of this trauma that impacts everyone's psychology like psychology so it there's i think we cannot expect uh, you cannot expect that uh, there is a magical solution or magical healing for the trauma that girls live in, in, in context of war and conflict. But there, like, it's, it's definitely, there's a lot of huge resources that needs to be shifted towards like uh, the psychological and mental, uh, mental health. And uh, without right resources, training, and also investment in the education system, they will not be able to, uh, to enjoy safe environment. Uh, as girls and in this regard the international organizations have a big role to play in building capacities to provide this support include including trainings for education staff because it's important this is being reflected on girls at, at in the classes also um, because the teachers they are also um, struggling they are um, uh, they are also impacted hardly impacted by by the war and by the conflict and to be honest with you, in, in humanitarian context, this aspect is really, I mean, most of the times it's really dismissed because they shift the priority to a human, like the humanitarian response uh, for many is just providing food and shelter while it's not. Like food and shelter will not be able to heal the trauma and the, you know, the injuries of, of these girls and, and young people also in these contexts. So it should be also taken into consideration that this would definitely impact their future. And we, as, like, um, as engaged in the response to these implications, we, we should also take into consideration that this will interfere in their future also. Indeed, and I love the point that you made about the fact that food and shelter cannot heal trauma. A lot of the times, the international community, when they see an emergency situation, the first response is always food and shelter, but what about the psychosocial support? What about the education staff? It's it's a holistic and an all-encompassing sort of approach that truly needed and you know speaking about the international community a lot of us just like myself we are at home and we are seeing these major humanitarian events unfold on the news on social media and 
feel helpless. We want to be able to do something, but oftentimes we don't know exactly, okay, what can I do? How can I try to assist in whatever way I can? So can you both tell us what we can do from our homes to help protect education in these crisis settings? Robin, you can take this one away first. In the span of three days, um, people on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook who were following the events of some of these veterinary clinics in Kabul that have employed women who are at great risk right now for the work they've been doing for the last decade in Afghanistan, um, rallied hard. Uh, They managed to, we managed to uh, get put on parliament floor between Sunday evening, nope, Monday afternoon and Wednesday morning Hundreds of thousands of messages were sent directly to the UK Prime Minister and to different MPs. And the organization that we're trying to support to get out, Nowzad, actually was mentioned by the the UK Prime Minister. And, you know, visas were then uh, issued. um, I'm not entirely certain on the terms, but ultimately it was the political pressure of those supporters from home tweeting, Instagramming, Facebooking. Uh, their MPs and officials. I'm, my my family's Canadian. I'm not even from the UK, and my family was tweeting MPs. Uh, and it, you know that was the pressure that worked. That got visas issued. Now they're still in a precarious situation, as are many. They still haven't been able to get out. But I can assure you, without that level of activism and engagement, uh, they would never have even been considered uh, that morning on the on the Parliament floor. So please don't ever underestimate the power. Of, uh, of social media in, in advocating for girls and women's rights and, and pushing people to visibly have to do the right thing in a difficult moment. Definitely, and thank you for that bit of practical advice. So ensure that you're holding your leaders accountable, using social media as a tool and you know finding local organizations. Those are the ways that Robin recommends that you can be a part of it. Amani, what do you think? What can people at home who are seeing these events unfold do to to try to assist in any way that they can? Just, I I would like to emphasize on the points that uh, uh, Robin mentioned. And I would like to also add that protection of girls should be a top priority for all uh, uh, for all duty bearers, for all policymakers, also for for donors, because we know that girls and their even on their way to school, they experience different kinds of threats and intimidations, and sometimes uh, harassments, also sexual harassment. Uh, for example, in the in the Palestinian context, uh, girls who attend schools nearby settlements, Israeli settlements, they experience different kinds of threats by settlers. Uh, they throw rocks, they, sh- they shoot on them, they, they stop them and harass them. So we really need to, uh, to highlight the, uh, the, these experiences and to call for, uh, like, to, to provide, like, for, call for duty bearers to provide the protection and hold duty bearers accountable for, for these violations of their rights, of the girls' rights. And also to, um, 
to 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 ensure that the the protection is achieved and also that that they have access full access to the basic uh, uh, the basic services and their to ensure that their needs are being met uh, we really also need to influence and to put pressure on on all policymakers to ensure that the the priorities and and issues of girls are on the top uh, or on the top agenda of policy making and um, of course to have uh, uh, to have equal opportunities for them for girls as boys as well uh, to access education and to enjoy a safe environment for them to to pursue their potential and to um, untap also their potential thank you and i wish that we could go on and on for hours because this has truly been an eye opening and a very um invigorating discussion you are both clearly leaders in your own right and the work that you're doing is phenomenal and like I said for those of us who are unable or we're not in the positions that you are who are on the ground we do appreciate what you're doing but like they said even though you're at home you can still play a part whether it's holding your leaders accountable and showing that education for girls and boys is always at the forefront and using social media, um, using your phone, whatever device that you have to spread the word and, and, you know, get, get the message out there. So thank you, Amani. Thank you, Robin, for taking time out of your, I'm sure, very busy schedules to be here with us today. Thank you so much, Nafisha. This has been an absolute pleasure. I really appreciate the time you and the UN Girls Education Initiative have taken to put this podcast together. All of the conversations and workshops that you do, I mean, it's it's really, really fantastic advocacy, and I will make all the time in the world for you guys. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for the work that you're doing. I mean, we we see these, like I said, I mean, the last question really resonated with me because you see your work and we see these events happening and I'm like oh my gosh what can I do Amani thank you as well um I know oh, we had thank a- you so much yeah yeah um you guys are just so inspired thank you uh, everyone and thank you Robin yeah you know. <laughs> so that brings us to the end of this episode this is Nafisha Richardson hosting the On Guy podcast and today we have heard from Robin Savage and Amani Aruri on why gender equality and education should be prioritized in humanitarian contexts. Music for this episode has been supplied by Chimba. The album is called M. Timber Rising and is available on Bandcamp. And if you want to listen to previous episodes and stay up to date on what's coming up, head to unguy.org forward slash podcasts. Until then, thank you for listening and goodbye for now.